Welcome to another episode of Lie, Cheat, and Steal, the podcast about liars, frauds, thieves, and bullshitters. I'm your host, Pat Royce. With me, as always, my co-host, Kath Barbadoro. Hi, Pat. How are How you? you? Doing? I'm doing good. I just want to remind our listeners, check it in, that we are a bi-monthly podcast, and we're available on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. And if you haven't already, be sure to give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and leave a short review. It's the easiest way to get us uh, out there in the limelight and help support the show. We also release two more episodes every month on Patreon, so if you like what you hear, visit patreon.com slash lie, cheat, and steal to sign up uh, to get two more scam stories every month, as well as access to our entire back catalog. Uh, that's right thank you for that uh yeah. up top plug i love that that <laughs> yeah, sounded get, so professional getting right in there man I, I just i've heard other podcasts do it and they seem like they're having more fun so i was like you know what let's do it with those guys <laughs> so yeah yeah thanks for, uh, for for tuning in guys this is a uh, uh, lovely we're recording this on father's day so i am just uh as drunk as an executioner <laughs> no okay i i, I uh I am just uh, having a good a good day, good good little Sunday. Things are going fun out here. Um, well, I mean, hot. you got to hang out with your son Lane. So yeah, you know. yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, I, no, let's be clear. That is my father. Lane is my dad. That Lane is your father. <laughs> yeah, no, we had, me and Lane, who I'm in my comedy rap group, Vanilla Presley, with, are practicing because we get to open for MC Chris on a. Uh, on Wednesday, so for all the huge MC Chris heads that also tune into the show, uh, I'm excited to see what a crowd of MC Chris fans looks like in 2022. Yeah, I'm, imagine I'm very they're all curious. my age. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure they're all my age, and just I, I guess the real question is how well they're pulling it off. Like I, yeah. I know, I know they're all 36, but who who looks it? That's what I want to know. Right? How they how are they doing? What kind of 36? <laughs> yeah, is yeah, it? yeah. It's really what we need to. Because there are two different kinds of 36, and both of those kinds of 36 are encapsulated in my group, Vanilla Presley. So I want to <laughs> see whether or not they are a Lane or a Pat, and we're gonna find out on Wednesday. At Spider you really House run the gamut of being 36, you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your group. <laughs> uh, we had like a comic, uh, George Anthony, beloved uh, Houston, San Antonio comic or austin san antonio comic was we did a show with him recently and he was talking about something like living a hard life and he goes yeah i mean look at us you know we all got bags under our eyes and he stopped he's like well except lane lane does not have bags under his eyes (laughs) (laughs) lane has gotten at least eight hours of sleep since 2002 so yeah god bless him yeah yeah but uh yeah you said uh you said new york is uh is looking good out there today yeah, it was a beautiful day today. Um, I I called my dad. He did not answer. He has not called me back. So <laughs> yes, just his a day. classic classic <laughs> Father's Day uh, thing. My I don't think my my dad has had a cell phone for probably fifteen years now. I don't think he has ever had it with him ever one day of that fifteen years. So I did my part. I called him. Uh, my gift to him was that I'm I'm asking him some advice about uh, bike stuff bicycle oh. stuff that's my gift to him that's, he gets that, that to is a very thoughtful gift stuff. yeah <laughs> he's gonna be really psyched about it i think yeah so <laughs> i my, my my dad was not one for like the pomp and circumstances just just about any day father's yeah. day his own birthday anyone else's birthday he certainly didn't give a shit about it. so it was like, <laughs> we were cool we were close but there was always that like I thought that was all dads, like all dads didn't give a shit. And just recently I overheard somebody at a restaurant and they're talking and this guy goes, yeah, my dad is super pissed that I didn't get him a, a Father's Day gift. And I just wanted to be like, tell your dad to sit down, sir. Like that is, I don't right. know, just, the idea of a dad getting all in a tizzy because somebody didn't it's, get him yeah, a Father's Day like, gift. 
you, you being a, you dads shouldn't be drama queens. That's not what being a dad yeah. is about. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, like that. That should be like the one day of the year. That's why I loved it. Like my dad. Again, we were close. Like he was, you know, he was a, a an emotionally available guy. Like there, we had sure. that. But when it came down to like, oh, I didn't get you a birthday gift. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. I'm like, I, I didn't get you one. Just be clear. He's like, you know, like I also yeah, didn't get you a gift. How, that's like, how my family <laughs> is about like every every occasion. Like, yeah, yeah we're not we're not into that stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, oh, like oh, my like my so Father's Day. Like so my. My birthday is like right around Mother's Day, and then my dad's birthday is like the week before Father's Day. So I just feel like there's like other stuff going on. Not yeah. like, not like, oh, I can't get my mom a gift because it's my birthday, but just like, <laughs> I don't know. It just not, 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 all those occasions aren't really like a big thing in my family. So, yeah. Well, know. you know what? You know, speaking of family. Okay. Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> Speaking of family, uh, and, and today being Father's Day, I wanted to do an episode, a long-awaited episode about America's dad, really, and that is the uh, uh, known criminal and famous snitch Henry Hill. Now, oh wow! Okay. Yeah, long-time listeners of the podcast are going to know that uh, we we bring this up all the time. Is our the Henry Hill moment? Uh, it, it's the moment I, I I I've defined it on the on the Twitter the other day. But the, Hen- the Henry Hill moment is the usually high stress moment uh, in which a scam just uh, comes undone. Uh, and it, it, yeah, it, it, like it, the it, last ditch effort to keep everything holding yeah. together and just it it's it all comes crashing. Yeah, the Henry Hill moment usually ends with exposure to law enforcement, uh, and it usually comes at the expense of the of the person perpetrating the scam keeping it up for as long as they have. It's usually it's just like you 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 you're keeping it up for an extended period of time, and we of course we we say this because of the the Henry Hill moment and the amazing Martin Scorsese film Goodfellas, when he's just he has to go he's doing a bunch of blow he has to go sell silencers his kid brother Jimmy has to stir the sauce and he's going back <laughs> and forth there's helicopters everywhere and one day and then finally at the end of the day it's like freeze motherfucker and he's and that's it and that's it's all said and done. That's the Henry Hill moment, and we've brought it up countless times on this on this podcast. And somebody recently was like, "Hey, when do we get a, when do we just get a Henry Hill episode?" And I was mm. like, "That's a good idea." And then R.I.P. the God, uh, fucking Ray Liotta passed away, and I was like, "Well, now's now's the time." And then now's the time, yeah, yeah. in honor in honor of Ray. Yeah, yeah, Amer- yeah, <laughs> America's I, I, again. I say America's dad about Henry Hill, but we we call him America's dad because of Ray Liotta. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is also a story that has a personal tie-in for me. It's a very light one, but I think people get a kick out of it. Um, and what else? Oh, I also want to take the time to analyze, to get this out of the way. Henry Hill, we obviously we cover liars, frauds, thieves, and bullshitters. Henry Hill is all four of those things, plus like nine other things that we don't normally cover. <laughs> <laughs> Henry Hill is a violent murderer, uh, and he is a, a sociopath and someone who has zero qualms shooting somebody and then just going home and turning to his family and cooking the dinner. So like he's not a, he, he, he checks all of our boxes and a bunch of boxes we don't normally check. So getting that at the sure. way up top. Um, also I wanted to d- analyze the differences between uh, the, the Henry Hill we see on screen in Goodfellas and the Henry Hill that we, that is the real life working model uh, for the, for the character. So wanted to get that at the way up top. But other than that, we'll just dive on in. Let's bring a, uh, Let's bring this up now. Uh, all right, Henry Hill. <clears throat> so Henry Hill was an American mobster associated with the Lucchese crime family in New York City from roughly 1955 until his arrest and turned to state's evidence in 1980. 
Hill's mob career was something of the blueprint for what any young mob associate hoped his life in organized crime would be like. As a teenager, I didn't realize I didn't realize he was for 25 years. He was Yeah, he was it was his well because he got such an early start. I guess like, that's true. Yeah, he started yeah. when he was a, a little kid. But yeah. yeah, that's that's quite a run for a for a organized crime figure, I feel like. I it feel is. like they usually get busted before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You 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 would think that's why I said he's kind of like the blueprint for I feel like if I was going into the mob and I was like, okay, uh, I'm considering this place as a career, uh, you know, they've got benefits, you know, like, the competitive right. pay. Uh, I would seriously look at at Henry Hill's time in the New York and the New York crime uh, families as like kind of the perfect blueprint. You know, he was like, because he grew up with. I mean, except for the fact that he then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Evidence and there is a. Although, like, as far as endings for mafia guys, like he did pretty well. So I don't know. Maybe that is what you want. He did. He did. You're right. And like he, you know, like I said, there's definitely like like there's there's ways that you can have a more perfect career, but if you let's look at it, do it. You know, so he. uh, as a teenager, he was beloved by the mob higher-ups and became sort of an unofficial mascot for the crime family that took him in and tutored him in the art of criminality. But as he grew up within the organization, he was able to sidestep the stigma that often happens when, like, resident youngsters, you know, grow up around quirks. So, yeah, they consistently have to prove themselves and not be like, oh, the little guy, a little, you know, little Billy Jr. over here. He was able to right. kind of immediately come into his own as a man and an operator in the uh, you know in the New York underworld because he was just respected he was smart he had charm so by the time he was in his mid twenties he could already draw from decades of experience in the streets and probably had a better head in his shoulders in terms of crime you know crime decision making than a lot of people twice his age and he uh you know and he also he was uh I would say that. And then also, you know, of course, he had more prestigious appointments that are usually reserved for older people. He was, you know, found himself getting jobs and tasks that were, again, usually given people 10 to 15 years his senior. Yeah. And so if Henry had managed to evade arrest that fateful day in 1980, it could be said that he had the perfect mob career. Three successful decades of making money and being highly regarded in his field while never being burdened with the expectations of becoming a made guy because he wasn't fully Italian, so he couldn't. Right. So it was like he, yeah. He kind of had this like this immediate out. It was it's a in in my opinion it was a, a perfect sweet spot. It's like you go in, you know, everybody loves you, everybody's nice to you, you get all the benefits of knowing these guys, and you don't really have other than kicking the money up to you know every week to the person ahead of you. You don't have these huge expectations of of having of going far in this organization because there's only so far you can go. Right. Yeah. So like you, I, it it works both ways too. Like not only. Do you not have that pressure to like move up the ranks, but also the guys who are moving up those ranks do not see you as competition. So they're not exactly. Yeah. You're not a threat to them. So they're going to leave you alone and let you make your money and not, you know, try to try to take you out because you might be competition to like be the boss or whatever. It it, it was him in in his, and we'll get into like his, uh, his, his, you know, um, his kind of, uh, uh, mentor Jimmy Burke, played by Robert De Niro, same thing to him. He was just everybody right. knew him, but he, he was like, but he was Irish, so there was, yeah, he wasn't a threat to anybody. He was able to make his money and just, yeah, get it, it, all the good, not really any of the bad. And so that's uh, definitely, definitely a, a sweet spot to be in. But of course, that is uh, is not what happened. He did not evade arrest that day, and suing charges would lead to him making the decision to testify against his former friends and business partners. And instead of being remembered as the guy who had the perfect criminal career, his name became synonymous with a figure universally loathed by criminals and honestly squares alike. And that is a rat. Nobody likes a rat. Nobody likes. Nobody a rat. likes a rat. It's very <clears throat> true. 
Yeah, like, like like even guys who should like rats, like cops, hate a rat, especially if we're ratting on them. You know, like like it's just nobody. At the end of the day, it's true. No one, no one has respect. It's, here's the thing, though. Like, no one likes a rat, but people do like a whistleblower. That's how yeah. you gotta frame it. You know, yeah, yeah, you gotta yeah. be. You gotta be the whistleblower of the mafia. You gotta yeah, the report the misconduct. You know, yeah, yeah. then people will like you. Yeah, look, I don't want to be be that guy, but I, they were they were saying racial slurs in a lot of these closed door meetings. You know? <laughs> we were not getting our fifteen minute breaks every eight hours. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, is is there anyone who gets murdered faster than the union guy for the mob? Because like, union, <laughs> yeah. like union the, guys the union are... guy who actually tries to enforce yeah. like the union contracts, <laughs> that guy is out of there. Yeah, because union guys already get killed pretty easily in these stories, pretty quickly, and then like guys <laughs> in the mob also get killed famously quickly. Union guy for the mob, you're not even making it out of bed that morning. <laughs> so, uh, Henry Hill Jr. Uh, he's a junior. It's a Father's Day episode. I told you all this. So Henry Hill Jr. was born June 11th, 1943 in Manhattan, New York, to Henry Hill Sr., an Irish-American electrician and the son of a coal miner, and Carmela Costa, an Italian immigrant of Sicilian descent. Hill claimed in the book Wise Guy that his father immigrated to the United States from Ireland at the age of 12. That's insane. He's like, I'm 12 years old. I'm moving to another country. And I'm going to. Yeah. And <laughs> probably like by fucking boat. So it was yeah, just like putting yeah, yeah, your yeah. kid on a boat and it took like months to get here. Insane. Yeah. That's insane. So the working class family consisting of Henry and his seven other siblings grew up in Brownsville, a working class neighborhood of Brooklyn. Hill was uh, dyslexic and as a result performed poorly at school. Now, um. Now, from an early age, Hill admired the local mobsters who socialized at a dispatch cab stand across the street from his home, including Paul Vario, a capo regime in the Lucchese crime family. Is it Lucchese? If it's Lucchese, I said Lucchese like four times now. I'm sorry. Lucchese. Um, I don't know. I think it's probably Lucchese, but I feel I'm like... I'm say Lucchese. Okay. Yeah. All right, so in 1955, he was 11 years old, and Hill wandered into the cab stand looking for a part-time after-school job. In his early teens, Hill began running errands for patrons of Vario's storefront, uh, Shoeshine Pizzeria and Cab Stand. It was like eight businesses all in one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm trusting the Shoeshine or the pizza. I feel yeah, like yeah, a, cab, yeah. a cab is a cab, but like that pizza is probably yeah. pretty gross. That Shoeshine <laughs> just, might be a little greasy. I don't know. I assure you that a washed hand has never touched any of our dough. <laughs> we have <laughs> never once sanitized anything. I just so, feel like the like car grease, the pizza grease, and the Shoeshine like boot black are all the same. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, yeah. Just, they buy it in bulk. Yeah. So, it's like the, the Bronner soap of fucking uh, the, the criminal underworld. <laughs> so yeah. And it was at this time that he met notorious hijacker and Lucchese family associate, James, Jimmy, the jet Burke in 1956. Now the 13 year old Hill used to serve drinks and sandwiches at a card game. It was dazzled by Burke's open handed tipping. He said, uh, he was saw bucking me to death. A saw buck is a 20. I found out. He said twenty here, twenty there. It's like he was, it was he wasn't like anyone else I'd ever met. That in nineteen fifty, that's like you could buy a house. Yeah, like that. man. That's crazy. Dude, I was just at the fucking casino and just how quickly twenty dollar bills were flying into those stupid slots. I, I was so angry with myself. I hate gambling. <laughs> but like what are you gonna do on the floor? And, you know, this is me and my girl and our home girl, like we're just, you know, playing the others, playing slots. Like I I I like one gambling game and it's CeeLo. Cause it's quick. It's three dice. It's boom. Yeah, you know, like, but they'll, you'll never see that played at a casino. <laughs> like <laughs> this one was just yeah, I was crazy. I, I was just upset at how much money they got off me. <laughs> so it was quick. Yeah, it does. It does. Now, 
Uh, the following year, Vario's younger brother, Vito Vario and Vario's son, Lenny, presented Hill with a highly sought-after union card in the Bricklayer's local. Hill would be a no-show and put on a building contractor's construction payroll, guaranteeing him a weekly salary of $190, equivalent to about $1,800 in today's money. Which is, uh, now, this wasn't like, now for some of these guys, that's like a thing. They're like, hey, you know, as part of you being part of the organization, here's a no-show job, you get all that money. Yeah. Hill it's was one more, of the perks. Yeah, Hill was, at this point, he's only like 14. He was like a right. name on paper. So he wasn't getting all this money, but I'm sure he was getting a good little cut, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the card also allowed Hill to facilitate the pickup of daily policy bets and loan payments to Vario from local construction sites. So once Hill had his legitimate job, legitimate in heavy quotes, uh, he dropped out of high school and began working exclusively for the Vario gangsters. Uh, they had to run all sorts of... Uh, you know, all sorts of errands. But of course, one of the famous ones that you see in the movie is arson. Uh, that, yeah. that famous series blown up all his cars. And there's not really an explanation given as to why he's doing it. Uh, it just, it just, it's just part Can of the Can you the imagine what a fucking treat that would be for a 15 year old? Oh, boy. yeah. You man. get to blow up a bunch of cars. Yeah, 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 just yeah. like <laughs> a real highlight. Yeah. Uh, oh, that would be so point, I mean, I'm 36 and I would love to blow up a car right now. <laughs> Now, I, remember, uh, I, I talked about the pawn shop episode and we had a, all this flood damage and we had to destroy all the merchandise that was flood damaged. And Hell it was yeah. just me with a metal pipe all day just busting up TVs. It was so good. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, the, well, the story behind that scene in the movie is that uh, the, this new cab stand business opened up and the rival owner was from Alabama and uh, he was new to New York City. So, sometime after midnight, Tuddy and Hill drove to the rival cab stand with a drum full of gasoline in the backseat of Tuddy's car. Hill smashed the cab windows and filled them with gasoline-soaked newspapers, then tossed in lit matchbooks. And as you see in the movie, blew the whole fucking place up. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, he was, uh, he was first arrested when he was 16, and his arrest record is one of the few official documents that prove his existence. Uh, they talk about this in the movie, how he's like, other than that, I, I didn't exist on paper. Off the books. Yeah, man, that's ooh, a way to live life. Um, <laughs> Hill, and, uh, Hill and Lenny and Vario's equally underage son attempted to use a stolen credit card to buy snow tires for Tuddy's wife's car. When Hill and Lenny returned to Tuddy's, two police detectives apprehended Hill. During a rough interrogation, Hill gave his name and nothing else. Vario's attorney later facilitated his release on bail. While a suspended sentence was rolled, Hill's refusal to talk earned him both the respect, earned him the respect of both Vario and Burke. Burke, in particular, saw great potential in Hill. Like Burke, he was of Irish ancestry, therefore ineligible to become a made man. The Vario crew, however, were happy to have associates of any ethnicity just as long as they made money and refused to cooperate with the authorities. So right there, and that's the scene that we see in Goodfellas where he gets busted for selling cigarettes. So it's a little different. He did sell cigarettes, but what they, what he initially got popped for that 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 got the you know, they got the whole gang behind him was stolen credit card fraud. So mm-hmm. uh yeah, which is a little more serious than selling cigarettes, or at least like a little less expected of a 16 year old I'd be like, oh, it's shit. definitely not as like quaint of a scene in a movie yeah. to <laughs> yeah. have it be credit card fraud so in june of 1960 uh oh my dad was born in june of 1960 happy father's day so in june of 1960 at around 17 years old hill joined the united states army serving with the 82nd Air Fo- airborne division at fort bragg in north carolina he claimed the timing was deliberate because the FBI's investigation into the 1957 Appalachian Mob Summit meeting had prompted a Senate investigation into organized crime and its leaks with businesses and unions. Have you ever heard about the Appalachian Mob Summit? Yeah, I have. It's like that big. They, that's when they like decide all the families and stuff, right? Like all yeah, the but yeah, it, it gets fucking. It gets broken up. And it it, gets, it, yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's actually it's the opening scene of analyze this. Oh, or analyze okay. that. What yeah, that, that that's that they're all out in the country and everybody these fucking like like they're like in the middle of like Appalachia and it's all these very clearly gangster types and the local sheriffs just run up in there and they can't use anything. It's completely like, like they did the bust all the wrong way. But like it's like it's pretty much every name you've ever heard of in like mafia fiction was just like running into the woods and like hiding behind trees and shit. <laughs> yeah, it was like their like convention, basically. They were yeah, like yeah, meeting yeah, up yeah. to like do, do to have the mafia con and then, yeah mafia con yeah they all got they all got recoed or whatever yeah, but they yeah, didn't man. get they didn't get charged or they did get charged they could it was basically like it was like these these people just ran up in there and it was like uh it, it basically it, 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 they at, at, at this time Jagger Hoover is trying to say that that the, the America did not have an organized crime yes. problem right so, that's what it was yeah and so they so ran like, up in this they ran up in this meeting and they, they did it the wrong way so they did they didn't do it in a way they could build a case or keep any evidence it was all completely sloppy but it was like mm-hmm. the optics were just undeniable it was like all these fucking right. guys were in the same place at the same time yet we Got don't have an organized it. crime problem okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what I was remembering is that's when they like they sort of d- unmasked like here are yeah. all these families and blah blah blah. Okay. Yeah, it was it was yeah it was that it was like, kind of you could kind of say the beginning of the end even though the, the beginning of the yeah. end it took it still took forty years and it still they got more powerful in that forty year period but um so yeah they, so he said at this point uh, he was told to just uh, to go to the military and kind of lay low. So he went mm. to the military, did a three-year enlistment, and he maintained his mob contacts. Uh, he also continued to hustle. He was in charge of kitchen detail, so he sold surplus food, loan shark pay advances to fellow soldiers, and sold tax-free cigarettes. Uh, before this man is dis- a hustler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't get rid of that shit, man. So before his charge, he'll spent two months in the stockade for stealing a local sheriff's car and brawling with in a bar with Marines uh, and a civilian. That was pretty Hell fucking yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> in 1963, he returned to New York and began the most notorious phase of his criminal career, including everything from arson, intimidation, running an organized stolen car ring and hijacking trucks, which that's like an old school crime that I don't think happens anymore. But like. You see, truck like, hijacking? Yeah, yeah, truck hijacking. I'm sure it happens, but like that used to be like the thing. Like it was like a yeah, very yeah. You real never risk. hear about that anymore. Yeah, guys, get out there, man. Bring it back, okay? I, hijacking yeah. trucks. Yeah, I, turn- wonder, I wonder if it's like just it's easier to track the merchandise and stuff yeah. now because of the, the internet and stuff. Like yeah, I know, know that's GPS big part and all that. I, I wonder if that's why it's like a lot easier to or it's a lot harder for things to just like quote fall off the back of a truck you yeah know? yeah they, well yeah they really do they started putting up gates in the back of the truck and they're like problem solved can't <laughs> happen anymore uh yeah but like, like some crimes now are just so boring like 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 you clicked the wrong link and you lost all your apes boo shitty movie <laughs> awful not entertaining yeah show me fucking yeah scorsese's yeah. not gonna be able to make anything yeah, yeah. Out of that. Come on. <laughs> yeah i want to see joe pesci yelling, yelling yippee kaye motherfucker as he blasts uh, they, uh, blasts a hole in the side of a pickup truck or a uh, uh, deuce and a half <laughs> anyway so there we go. So uh, in 1965, Hill met his future wife, Karen Friedman, uh, who we all know and love as Lorraine Bracco. Karen! Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I know some women, like my best friend, Marsha. Oh, God. I, I mean, if it's not clear, that's what that might be my favorite movie of all time is Goodfellas. I it's love it. It's one so of the much. best. It's yeah. so goddamn good. It's, we're, <laughs> we're just assuming everyone listening to this has seen it. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, if you haven't, like, put this on pause. Like, go watch the movie and then come back. Yeah, it's dude, so good. 
my my last relationship ended with essentially a lift from Goodfellas. I st- I had a show back home in Colleen. I stayed out all night. I got home with the sun, and I'm walking up to the door from an Uber in my show shirt. It's like still in my dress clothes from the night before, and like my ex and her mom into the door. Like, where were you? And I was like, this is Goodfellas. This is the same shit. Like- <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. So yeah. So she he met he met Karen. Through Vario, who insisted that Hill accompany his son on a double date uh, at uh, Frankie the, at Frank quote Frankie the Watt Monzo's restaurant. So again, this is another, another like kind of crossover scene with the movie in reality. A lot of times, um, uh, uh, Nicholas, oh, what the hell is um, Joe Pesci's character Tommy DeSimone, um A lot of things that happened with him. Uh, like especially getting popped when they were younger, him going on his first date with Karen, that actually happened with Henry and Vario's son, mm-hmm. not Tommy Desimone. Because apparently Tommy Desimone and and, uh, and Hank Hill didn't get along that great. In fact, like Tommy Desimone um, uh, actually uh, attempted to force himself upon Karen uh, at one point, causing a huge rift in their in their relationship. Like they were yeah, they they weren't nearly as cool as the movie would have made you made it out to think. I mean that they weren't as cool as the movie would have you believe, but also that sounds like character-wise in line with that character in the yeah. movie. Like he's a real piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, real like piece a of real shit. crazy person. But they're, they're lo- friends. I, I yeah. love the scene who like when he fucking when he's explaining to him that he needs to have him as a wingman because the girl doesn't like Italians. He's like, you believe that shit in this day and age? She's prejudiced against <laughs> Italians. And like the next scene, he's calling Sammy Davis Jr. the N-word. Like he's just a right. completely duplicitous <laughs> piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> so um, now, according to Friedman, the date was disastrous and Hill stood her up at the next dinner date. Afterward, the two began going on dates to Copacabana and other nightclubs and where Friedman was introduced to Hill's outwardly impressively lifestyle, impressive lifestyle. The two later got married in a large North Carolina wedding attended by most of Hill's gangster family friends. And in 1994, in his book, Gangsters and Goodfellas, that's when he stated that Tommy DeSimone, um, yeah, made it, made it, uh, for, attempted to force himself on Karen. Um, now a couple like little, little Goodfellas inaccuracies I wanted to bring up. I found a cool article that kind of like, uh, detailed them all. So just some things that people don't really think. Um, so yeah, so there was, uh, oh yeah. So the Hills, uh, they're, they're, in the movie, the Hills are depicted as having two daughters, but in actuality, uh, Karen and Henry Hill actually only had one daughter and one disapproving son. His son's name was Greg, and Greg grew up having resenting having to stash his dad's triple beam drug weighing up balance in the bedroom and sharing the family kitchen with garbage bags full of marijuana. He envied his friends whose dad had, had boring nine-to-five jobs. Greg rebelled by being a straight arrow who got all A's in school. Later, as Henry became physically abusive toward Karen, Greg intervened by attacking him with a mace. So that's how, that's how, uh, Greg sounds pretty fucking yeah. rad. I wish Greg he was sounds in the fucking movie. rad. Also, you, that's how you tell he's like way different than his dad. Cause he got into D and D shit. Cause he had a mace on hand. <laughs> like, yeah. <he> was like, <laughs> I just was like, no, get back at him. And he owns like, I, mid- feel, like, medieval I feel like what I'm learning from this is that, um, Goodfellas is not actually really a biopic of Henry Hill. The Irishman is a biopic of Henry. Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's yeah. really like Anna Paquin is Greg. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> another great movie by the way recommend yeah, I, that man, one as well i've always seen like half of it 
Um, it's great. It's really good. I know it's long, but it's yeah. really good. I, when I, back in my last bout of singledom, I remember like using that as a gauge to how long a girl intended me to stay at her house. Like, she's like, you want to watch something? I'm like, yeah. Like, she like hover on the Irishman for a second. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Choose the Irishman, girl. Come on, let's have three hours. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, never lucky enough. But uh, let's see. Um, yeah, another one was, uh, let's oh yeah, that, uh, Oh, yeah, well, they said that. The other thing that was correct, that, and I was going to make a joke when I started this about one of the biggest differences that Henry Hill uh, is that Ray Liotta, between Henry Hill and Ray Liotta is that Ray Liotta is handsome and Henry Hill is ugly as shit. But apparently everybody thought Henry Hill was, like, a good-looking guy. But you apparently what you, yeah, what you could debate was that he was very, very charming. Like, uh, okay. and, she, and she said, um, Karen said, uh, she was like, yeah, that scene when he walks through the back restaurant, and he introduced her, she's like, that is, like, legit. That's the Henry I fell in love with. It was everybody mm-hmm. liked him. Yeah, so yeah, not, not necessarily the, the, the most accurate movie, but, you know. So moving into the the, the meat of the story here, uh, the things that qualifies Henry Hill for a lie, cheat, and steal episode, uh, you know, because, again, there's so many crimes that are just regular true crime crimes that he did, which is, like, killing people and shit. Right. Um, but so the first one was the Air France robbery. Now, um, the Air France robbery, if you remember, this is, the, this is the first robbery from the movie before the Lufthansa heist, the first airline mm-hmm. robbery. So mm-hmm. shortly before midnight on April 6, 1967, Hill and DeSimone drove to the Air France cargo terminal at JFK uh, with an empty suitcase. And this is kind of how funny it was, er, how early on it was like in, in Henry Hill's career. Or I guess not even early on is what I'm trying to say, but just like how normal shit is when you, when people, when you're a criminal, you know, like you hear like these huge, like legendary heists and you think all this stuff went into it. And it was basically Henry Hill was like, yeah, I just grabbed a suitcase and uh, it was the biggest one we could find. And so the reason they stole as much as they did is because he found the largest fucking suitcase. If he'd have found Great. a smaller suitcase, they would have stole less. If he could have found <laughs> a bigger suitcase, they would have stole more. <laughs> that was just, sure. It was what it was. So, um, inside, uh, their inside connection was a guy named Robert McMahon, and he said that the two should just walk in, as people often came to the terminal to pick up lost luggage. So DeSimone and Hill entered an unsecure and unchallenged area and lo- unlocked the door with a duplicate key. Using a small flashlight, they loaded seven bags into the suitcase and left with $420,000. Yeah, boy. No, but, um, Hell yeah. Nice. Yeah, right? Yeah, the coolest amount of money. Absolutely. No alarm, was, no alarm was raised, no shots fired. No one was injured. The theft was not discovered until the following Monday when a Wells Fargo truck arrived to pick up the cash to be delivered to the French American Banking Corporation. And uh, Hill believed it was, a, the, it was the Air France robbery that endeared him to the mafia. Mm-hmm. And it's also funny to remember, like, again, I, I think Henry Hill, I think mafia, Henry Hill's understanding of himself, he was very aware that he was not part of the mafia. Like, right. He was he was a criminal that paid tribute to the organized crime in his area, but he was yeah. not like a member, which is honestly and again, I think it's the best thing to be. That just feels like that feels like the life that you want. I mean, we've all seen The Sopranos like, yeah, being in the mafia seems like a lot more trouble than it's worth in yeah. a lot of ways. <laughs> Oh man, I, I I just recently like happened to like stumble upon the fucking uh, the Christopher's intervention episode. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, just it's just uh, such a good show. It's such a great scene. Like, <laughs> so, oh my god, yeah, that so I, yeah, excellent show. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> man, I just oh god, I'm gonna talk. I 
basically my, my you know interventions are supposed to be done like lovingly and, and with and with care to get to the person <laughs> there was i won't get into details there was an intervention within my family done recently and like i heard the details and it was just like just like my family would do it was like there was no like hey we're gonna take xyz to a, a, a spot where everyone's secure we're gonna talk to them tell them we love them it was literally my cousin kicking in the front door of my other cousin's house with a trash bag and throwing all of his liquor inside of it while my aunt just yelled at him like, that was so good yeah that, i feel like that is how like i know that's not how a professional intervention is supposed to go but i feel like that is how like statistically most of them are it's yeah, just yeah, people yeah. being like you're fucking up and you gotta stop fucking yeah, up we yeah, are yeah. tired of it yeah. that is yeah yeah that's to speak how to the, they all are yeah to speak to the effect of this of this this story was told to me while drunk at a bar so yeah yeah, yeah. It's, this is not you're supposed to do it the like you know, your actions have impacted me in the yeah, following. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody shit. read a list of anything. I, I just, I, I got, <laughs> I got word of that. I was like, man, I love my family so much because that, yeah, that's definitely how they did it. <laughs> uh, so, another thing I've considered doing this as an episode uh, in the past. This is what I'm about to get into next, and that was the the Boston College point shaving scandal. You hear it referenced. Like, and almost like it, it's in a bunch of mob movies, it gets referenced as something going on in the background. You, you hear about it in The Irishman, or you hear about it in fucking um, um, Black Mass, and they talk about it in Goodfellas. And it was the, mm. the Boston College point shaving scandal. And it's always like a little throwaway line of dialogue. Like in, in Goodfellas, like they're walking out to the car uh, to go kill yeah. homeboy with the big eyebrows. Spoiler alert. And so, and so yeah, like they, they get him and... Uh, it's always in the background of the thing. But what it really was, was it was Hill and two Pittsburgh gamblers. Another thing in the background of the Goodfellas is, is Henry Hill's Pittsburgh connections. He always talks mm-hmm. about all the, all the drugs, there's Pittsburgh connections. So he was he was out there in the bird, big baby. Uh, he liked it because they put French fries in their sandwiches. So Yeah, who doesn't? Yeah, yeah, who's not going to like those guys? So Hill and two Pittsburgh gamblers set up the 1978-1979 Boston College basketball point-shaving scheme by convincing Boston College center Rick Kuhn to participate. Now, Kuhn was a high school friend of one of the gamblers and encouraged teammates to participate in the scheme. And there's a 30 for 30 about this, and they talk to that guy, and he, he says he didn't know such thing. But, like, uh, I don't know. It, clearly he did. So the Perla brothers did, those are the, the, the Pittsburgh guys, proposed a simple scheme. They, along with Kuhn, would select certain basketball games where the projected point spread separating Boston College from its opponent was expected to be significant. Kuhn would then be responsible for ensuring by his play on the court that Boston College fell short on the point spread. For example, if the participating bookmakers determined that Boston College to be an eight-point favorite in a particular game, Kuhn would be paid a bonus, usually 2500 bucks, if they won by less than eight points. In addition, they were given the opportunity to bet the money they were paid and double their winnings. So, I mean, they should. He should get paid more than that. I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Twenty five hundred bucks is low. He should have held out for more. Yeah. Because they sure. were making a lot more than that on those bets. I'm sure. Yeah. Exactly, man. Like, like it's it's just kind of funny. Like, it's like whether it be the fucking mob or the NCAA, that nobody's giving these guys what they deserve. Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just exploited on all sides. Yeah. Terrible. So yeah, and then they were also giving, like, and then they also left that like, oh, we'll, we'll let you bet the money, like, you know, we won't pay you more. Right. We will, we will let you lose it. You know, <laughs> like, we'll let right. you do that. And we will take like a cut because yeah, we're yeah. organizing all the bets. You know. Yeah. So the conspiracy unraveled in 1980, years after it happened. Well, I mean, it was like a year after it happened, but this is one of those things that would have gone down 
like everybody would have understood what happened and known, but nobody could have proved anything. And it was mm-hmm. actually Henry Hill's arrest that led to the Boston College point shaving scandal being blown wide open. Oh, um, really? Because he, yeah, he yeah, outlined the particulars. Yeah, yeah said, if you don't. If you don't have somebody corroborating this, like there's all, all of the evidence is going to be circumstantial. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. So that was uh, speaking of, of his arrest and, and what was that? You know, what what they brought him in for or just like the thing he's known the most for, of course, talking about the Lufthansa heist. Uh, Lufthansa heist. Um, that's that's if you watch Goodfellas, that's the one. That's the big one. That's when you know uh, Maury is asking for his money. Homeboy buys, drives a pink Cadillac, and next thing you know, half of the fucking New York mafia is tumbling out of the back of trash ca- trash trucks to the tune of Eric Clapton's fucking uh, that song that he wrote about fucking old girl's wife. So um, yeah, the Lufthansa heist was a robbery at New York City's John F. Kennedy International Airport on December eleventh, nineteen seventy-eight. An estimated $5.875 million, equivalent to $24.4 million today, was stolen. It was five, with $5 million in cash and about close to a million in jewelry. And it was the largest cash robbery committed on American soil at the time. Um, the money and jewelry were never recovered. And the heist magnitude made it one of the longest investigated crimes in the United States. The latest arrest associated with the robbery was made in 2014. Oh, damn. Yeah, ended in an acquittal too. <laughs> so you know that rocks. That's yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the heist was allegedly planned by Jimmy Burke and carried out by several associates. The plot began when bookmaker Martin Krugman told Henry Hill that Lufthansa flew in currency to its cargo terminal at JFK Airport. The information had originally come from Lewis Werner, a worker at the airport who owed Krugman twenty grand for gambling debts, uh, equivalent to about ninety grand in twenty twenty one. The idea of owing, owing someone ninety thousand on a gambling debt, like very, it, it should do this. It makes me nervous, and, and it should. <laughs> like, like you, yeah, you know, that's like that. I I feel like that's a sickness at that point. That's yeah, not yeah. like a. That's not like a few bad decisions. That's yeah. like a serious problem. But yeah, I, was, I guess you're like, don't I got this knowledge about Lufthansa money in my back pocket to yeah. you know, when the going gets rough, I can let them know. So. Yeah, and this is this this speaks to the importance of knowledge, people. Reading is important. Like enrich your brain <laughs> to make yourself valuable to the people who want you dead. Right? Keep like, those <laughs> little tidbits of knowledge filed away yeah. for when you're when you're being like pressed up against a wall with a baseball yeah. bat and someone's threatening to break your kneecaps you could say you know i have some yeah. info for you and yeah exactly yeah. scot free get off yep. with only a blown off kneecap and yeah else. yeah yeah which which great deal at that point 90 grand you you, Absolutely. you you got pretty lucky if so, someone was like i will give you 90 grand but i get to smash your knee with a baseball bat i would oh, be done. like See, here's the thing though <laughs> yeah. how much are the how much are the medical bills gonna be because oh, that solid point I like a a knee. That's a that can be an expensive problem. Yeah. You also, know what you I mean? know what? Yeah, ninety ninety grand losing a knee. Like like you know, I've never been in perfect health, but I, I feel like a knee injury <laughs> would just be what sets it off to where they're just like, yeah. And then he just, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. Then it was all it was all downhill from there after the knee injury. You know, he blew through that ninety grand real fast. And like, <laughs> then you're yeah. just a fucking one legged fat fuck who's like used to having money on hand, so you're already in debt. Yeah, no, no, no. No, th- yeah, it, no, could, that- it could it could lead you down a bad road. But if you were like, yeah. I don't know, if you were like, uh, I'll break, I'll I'll you I'll break your arm and give you ninety grand. I would probably do it. Oh, I would yeah. think about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, ninety grand for broken arm. Yeah, no, I, I would. Yeah, you get a lot of time off work. You know, what I'm saying? <laughs> like, <things> are- <laughs> 
Yeah, that, 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 that's a, that sounds like a great day. Thank actually. you for subscribing to our Patreon because <laughs> yeah. otherwise we would be doing insane shit for money. So yeah, you guys see what we would do if you're, yeah, if your money wasn't tethering us to the real world, you know, like, where we would be at. <laughs> All right, so yeah, so it was on December 11th, 1978, around 3 a.m., six men in a black Ford Econoline pulled up to the Lufthansa Cargo Building 261. The padlock on the gate was cut with a pair of bolt cutters. Some of the crew climbed up the stairs of the East Tower and entered wearing ski masks and gloves. A late model Buick was positioned in the terminal parking lot with its lights off. Inside the terminal, John Murray, a senior cargo agent, was the first employee taken hostage. He was walked to the lunchroom where five other Lufthansa employees were on their meal break since 3 o'clock a.m. Um, and ordered it to be flat on the floor with their eyes closed. Murray was asked who else was in the warehouse. He said a guy named Rudy Eric, the night shift cargo manager, and uh, Carrie Whalen, a cargo transfer agent, were there. Murray was forced to lure Eric to come upstairs and join the rest of the captured employees. <laughs> Eric, we got fucking donuts up here. I don't know what you would say. <laughs> <laughs> Outside the terminal, Whalen noticed the two unmasked men sitting in a black van parked at the Lufthansa cargo building 261 ramp. As he drove past, Waylon parked and walked toward the van. One of the men told him to get in the van. Waylon screamed for help as he ran, but was pistol whipped and thrown in the van. That's how you get it done. Uh, he was brought to join the other hostages in the lunchroom. Uh, where the screen didn't get him anything. He, he screamed for help and nothing. So inside the warehouse, employee uh, Rolf Redman, uh, which sounds like a name Scooby-Doo is saying, uh, a Rolf Redman heard a noise by the loading ramp and went to investigate. He was captured and brought with Wyland into the lunchroom with others. Some of the robbers uh, took Eric at gunpoint to the uh, double door vault. They removed 72 15 pound cartons of untraceable money from the vault and placed them in the van. At 4.21 a.m., the van pulled up to the front of the building and the crash car pulled in behind. Two gunmen climbed the van. The others got in the Buick. The employees were told to not call the Port Authority police until 4.30 a.m. when the first police call was recorded. The robbers drove to meet Burke. That's good. Auto- they followed the rules. Yeah, they followed yeah. them. God damn it. If we could have just called before 4.30, but the guy said we couldn't. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you, he said it, too. He was looking at me real mean. It was implied that something bad would have happened. <laughs> he would have turned that car around and came back and shot me, I tell you. Absolutely. So the he robbers drove out. to meet Burke at an auto repair shop in Canarsie, Brooklyn. The boxes of money were removed from the van and placed in the trunk of two automobiles. Burke and his son drove off in one car. Four others, Monree, McMahon, Desimone, and Sepe, drove uh, away in the second car. So the investigation of that afterwards is pretty accurately shown in the movie. Of course, we have Edward uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character, Stax Edwards, had failed to get rid of the van that had been used in the heist. Edwards was supposed to have driven the vehicle to New Jersey, where it, along with any potential evidence inside, was destroyed in a, ju- destroyed in a junkyard belonging to John Gotti. Instead, Edwards parked the van in front of a fire hydrant at his girlfriend's apartment. That's just, man. Classic, like, I, classic yeah. New York parking situation <laughs> yeah, yeah, where you're yeah. like, fuck it. I'm only going to be there for a little bit. I'm yeah. sure it'll be fine. I'll just, it's the only spot. Yeah, and why then, would you, why would you do anything else though? Like if I, if right. Like, you use this van to steal <clears throat> millions of dollars. Don't yeah. just fucking go to your girlfriend's house Yeah, with yeah. It. What else? I, I guarantee you she's not that cool. Like she's just like, like right. just go. Like, like, I just can't imagine a reality in which I did anything except exactly what I was instructed to do in that, in that situation. Right. It's one of the right. few times we'll ever feel that way. 
<laughs> so the FBI identified the Burt crew as the likely perpetrators within three days of the robbery, largely due to the discovery of the van, coupled with Edwards' pre-established connections to the Burt gang at Robert's Lounge. They set up heavy surveillance, following the gang in helicopters and bugging their vehicles. The phones at Robert's Lounge, even the, even the pay phones nearest to the bar. The FBI managed to record a few bits of tantalizing chatter despite the background sounds of rock and disco music, such as Angelo Seppe telling an unidentified man about a brown case and a bag from Lufthansa and telling his girlfriend, Hope Barron, that, uh, I want to see where the money's at. Dig a hole in the cellar and get a real lawn. <laughs> so just, good job, guys. But it was still not enough to definitively connect Burke's crew to the heist and no search warrants were issued. So according to Henry Hill, this is when Jimmy Burke became paranoid and agitated once he realized how much attention Edwards' failure had drawn and also resolved to kill anyone who could implicate him in the heist, starting with Edwards himself. With the murders, most of the, heists, the murders of most of the heist associates and planners, little evidence and few witnesses remained connecting Burke or his crew to the heist. However, the authorities were eventually able to gather enough evidence to prosecute the inside man, Louis Werner, for helping to plan the heist. Now, Werner was the only man convicted of robbery in 1979 and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. This Lu- poor fucking guy, he didn't yeah. even get any of the money, I bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, he just, yeah, he just gave them a He was just up. trying to get out of his debt, like give yep. them something. God, what a what a sap. What yeah, a sucker. Dude. Yeah, dude. It reminds me of a uh, fucking uh, Robert Patrick's character in fucking Sopranos with the, sport, the sporting store goods owner. Yeah, the bust yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> I remember at one point when they were just like, they, kept, they were yelling to go back in his hole. Like, go back in your hole. Like, they, they were making him sleep in a oh tent. My God, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So dark. I, I love how no one saw Tony's point in the whole thing. He's like, he made a bet. He's like, he was a man. He entered into an agreement and he squelched on right. it. And like, he was just, the fact that nobody understood what he, where he was coming from. And again, I'm not saying he was making a correct point, but the fact that he just <laughs> expected everyone else to be like, actually, Tony, you're right. <laughs> like, right. Like he just, it, it was just like an A to B for him. Like nobody else could, could follow yeah, yeah, It was yeah, so like, obvious to him. Yeah, yeah. Like, I feel yeah. like I'm taking fucking crazy pills that you guys don't <laughs> understand that what I'm doing is okay. Oh, uh, man. So, you know, this one, yeah, we've all, we've kind of all seen, this is when everybody's, you know, Bodies are tumbled out the back of trucks sent to Eric Clapton. Sent to Eric Clapton. Um, the murder of associates is like so extensive. It's like its own little section of the fucking uh, of the Wikipedia entry. But essentially, it was like uh, Parnell stacks Edwards. That was uh, you know um, Samuel Jackson's character. He was murdered. Yeah. Martin Krugman, the wig salesman, that guy also murdered. Yep. Then you just had just about. Everybody, homeboy, uh, Richard Eaton, he was the guy in the fucking freezer truck. Uh, just a whole long list of people who were killed over this. And then eventually, if you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, it would kind of, technically, even like Tommy Dismone, was not really killed over it. But like, you know, he was one of the guys that on the crew that was ended up killed, which isn't really saying much because they were all mafia members too. So I guess that's not a big deal. <laughs> or not a big deal, but it's not surprising that they, that they would end up dead. So... And that was bringing to this. This is something I we I guess we've uh, been leading leading towards for this entire podcast adventure we've been on, and we're gonna talk about the Henry Hill moment. Uh, yeah, music and, and Here games. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So, it, it, what's funny is we don't. I looked. At, I did upwards of four Google searches trying to find <laughs> information about the actual like circumstances of the arrest, like on the ground, like what was happening when Henry Hill was arrested. But I, the only thing really that, like, the, the only, um, like, aside from, like, reading the, the damn book, but like, the only uh, evidence of this is just what happened in the movie, and apparently it wasn't that far off. 
1980, Henry Hill was arrested on a narcotics trafficking charge. He became convinced that his former associates planned to have him killed. Vario for dealing drugs and Burke to prevent Hill from implicating him in Lufthansa heist. Hill heard a wiretap that his associates Angelo Seppi and Anthony Stabile were anxious to have him killed and that they were telling Burke that Hill was, quote, no good and, quote, a junkie. Burke told them not to worry about it. Hill was more convinced by a surveillance tape played to him by federal investigators in which Burke tells Vario of their need to have Hill whacked. And that's like a common thing in the mob is like, they're like, they want you to flip. Like, oh, I want to turn on my buddies. Like, well, here's all your buddies talking about killing you. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, <laughs> Which, yeah, I can imagine making it an easy, uh, an easy flip. So. When Hill was finally released on bail, Burke told them that they should meet at a bar, which Hill had never heard of or seen before, owned by Charlie the Jap. And I never liked that anyone called him that. I've always been against that nickname. <laughs> so, I, 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 you know, get mad at Henry Hill, not me, all right? So, however, Hill never met Burke there. Instead, they met at Burke's uh, sweatshop. With They call it a sweatshop. I, I, guess it, I wouldn't lean into that name, but... Uh, they met at Burke's sweatshop with Karen and asked for the address in Florida where Hill was to kill Bobby Germain's son. So this was the thing, it was a slight detail in the movie. Basically, they were like, oh yeah, yeah, like, like Henry Hill, we need you to go down there and kill this guy's son. And he was certain that that was to get him killed out of state. You know, that, that was that was the uh-huh. whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, yep. so at this point, at, um, Edward McDonald, the head of the Brooklyn Organized Crime Strike Force, arrested Hill as a material witness in the Lufthansa robbery. With a long sentence hanging over him, Hill agreed to become an informant and signed an agreement with the strike force on May 27, 1980. So this is uh, where Hill, Henry Hill becomes an informant and joins the witness protection. He testified against his former associates to avoid impending prosecution and being murdered by his crew. His testimony led to 50 convictions. Hill, his wife Karen, and their two children, Greg and Gina, entered the U.S. Marshals Witness Protection Program in 1980, changed their names, and moved around to several undisclosed locations, including Seattle, Washington, Cincinnati, Ohio, Nebraska, and Montana. He's literally on my next tour. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see? I saw someone tweet about how so Henry Hill went into witness protection. Um, a nickname for Henry is Hank. Therefore, King of the Hill is about Henry Hill <laughs> in witness protection. <laughs> oh, I like that reading. I like that. I'll buy into it. That's great. Uh, so, yeah, he, uh, so it was in this time that he, he, he sits down. He was given 12 years um, in prison for the, uh, oh, sorry, Jimmy, Jimmy Burke. I apologize. So Jimmy Burke was given 12 years in prison for the 19th, for the Boston College point shaving scandal. Is this, okay, so hold on. They, so they arrest Henry Hill. And then because of Henry Hill's testimony and cooperation, they arrest Burke. Yes. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And he was, he got 12 years, um, for the, 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 the Boston college games of point, fi- point fixing scandal. And then he mm-hmm. also got two life sentences for the murder of Stax and Richard Eaton, uh, the guy with the thick eyebrows found in the, in the ice truck. Um, yeah. However, as far as I understand, he did not get charged for the Lufthansa heist. They still couldn't get him for the actual that. heist. Yeah, interesting. So, Burke died of cancer while serving his life sentence on April thirteenth, nineteen ninety six. Just missed Toy Story. Um, Paul Vario, yeah, no, right? It's, that's a shame. Paul Vario received four years for helping Henry Hill obtain a no-show job to get him paroled from prison. So it was like, again, they always catch these guys on fucking like weird little technicalities. Technicalities, yeah, yeah not the big crime. Yep. He died of respiratory uh, failure in prison in, in 1988 at the age of 73 while in, uh, in Fort Worth. Now, um, then, of course, now, then Nicholas Pelegi 
writes the Wise Guy book, which was essentially a and I don't know, a list, but in response, um, Henry Hill also wrote a book, and apparently it's called like my my time is a good fellow or something like that, and it is like one of like it's it's like the kind of thing you would expect a gangster to write about himself in the first hand. It's like like, like he, every girl that he mentions in it, like, uh, he mentions her bra size for some reason. Like just yeah yeah a, yeah, it's the seediest one. And Nicholas Pileggi was like, hey, let me help you clean this up a little bit, and, and we'll turn yeah, this into let me let me book. ghostwrite this for you, yeah, so yeah, it's not yeah, just yeah. about it's not just you <laughs> bragging and clearly making things up. Yeah. 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 He's like, Hey Nick, I'm going through the new copy of the book. And, uh, you know, a lot of information is left out, like the size of Janice's tits, which I thought was very (laughs) important to the story. (laughs) So I told you this one had a a small personal connection. And that was when I was in, when I was, uh, in the, the Connecticut comedy scene in my first three years doing comedy, a guy, a weird, you know, this will happen in comedy. Somebody will just show up on the, on the scene as like kind of a comic slash show booker. And they're just all of a sudden friend requesting everybody and they're in everybody's life immediately. And you're like, where'd this guy come yep. from? Yeah. Yep. So that was this guy. This guy, this guy was Tracy Big Daddy Lynch. And he was a Connecticut. They usually have a nickname like that as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, they're never just, hey, my name is Mike Jones, and I want to tell you a joke and get good at it and get better. No, it's always like, no, nope. uh, yeah, I'm Willie the Funny Man, and like, it's weird that I'm called that because I am not. Uh, <laughs> so this is one of these guys, and he showed up, and he would do like, he would like do these shows, but he would go up to, to like to to host them, and he had no experience as a comedian, no kind of skill as a comic. And he had a, a da- an adult daughter who was like uh, living in like constant medical care because she was uh, medically brain dead after a car accident. And he would bring this up in his opening joke and he'd go, and she loves to write jokes. And, and she would write these jokes. She said, Daddy, I, I bet these can't get a get get a laugh at your comedy show. Folks, do you think they could get a laugh? Do you think they could get a laugh? And people were like, yeah, oh I guess. You know? like, oh my God. And then I was like, okay, he's going to read like, a joke book joke and say that his terminally like medically brain dead daughter wrote this joke or whatever the fact and like he no these I have no doubt came from her mind I thought she was in a coma oh, I'm no, no, so no, I, I, I'm mixing up my terms here I guess what I'm saying is like she was she she after the accident she had uh Stark, she had problems. Stark developmental disabilities after that. Like okay. was, clearly, and I thought he was gonna be writing jokes that were like or telling jokes that were like from a joke book, and then we're like, sure. oh, but no, th- I'm pretty sure that she wrote these because <laughs> they were just God. really weird. And then he don't would go, bring up like personal tragedies in your yeah. opening joke. Yeah, just no he, matter what you're gonna do with them, just don't do that. Yeah, and then he would go, "You guys ready for a comedy show?" <laughs> so like, oh my it was, God. So he did this place. He did these shows out of a, a club in Middletown, Connecticut, called the Shadow Lounge. And the guy who owned the Shadow Lounge lived in L.A. and like really was never in town to see his, his thing operated. And somehow uh, Tracy Lynch had like a connection with this guy. And so he goes, "Hey, can I do comedy shows?" At your shadow lounge thing, I goes, yeah, sure. He goes, "Well, what's the split?" The guy goes, "I don't give a fuck. Just you know, charge tickets to the door. You keep the door. We'll keep the bar." He goes, okay, okay, cool. Well, then Tracy, like, obviously the guy was like, oh, you're going to be putting together little shows with local comedians, which he was doing at first. Well, then he got a connection to Hank Hill, or Hank Hill, now you got me saying it, to Henry Hill, when Henry Hill was doing, like, speaking engagements in the years before his death. And he set up a show where Henry Hill came and gave a speaking engagement and packed out. It sold, you know, it sold like, a thousand tickets or some crazy shit like that. And he made all this money, and Homeboy found out about it. It was like, 
I didn't tell you you could have like big events there that were going to make thousands of dollars. Like I told you to have your little comedy shows. And the guy I'm was, honestly surprised that he did that instead of booking Henry Hill and doing comedy at the same show. <laughs> like that's what I would expect this guy to do. Like he opens with his jokes that his brain damaged daughter wrote and then <laughs> yeah. he brings on Henry Hill. Yeah, that's so. I'm impressed that he had the taste to not do that. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Honestly, that, that, that seems like a lot more up his alley. But uh, yeah, <laughs> so that, that's my connection is that we the, the the guy that would book these shows it was a complete weirdo mystery man to the Connecticut comedy scene. Um, booked one like it was like right before he died too. It was like like I think like six or seven months before this dude. Did you death. go? Did you go see him? I did not go and see him. No, I did not. But I heard about <laughs> it. I heard it was like a big pop. And I mean, it was in, it was in like Watertown, Connecticut. It was like the place where like some Henry Hill heads are gonna come out of the woodwork. <laughs> so uh now henry hill himself though he died of complications related to heart disease in a los angeles hospital on june 12 2012 after a long battle with illness a day after his 69th birthday nice nice yeah <laughs> his girlfriend for the last six years of his life lisa caserta said that he'd been sick for a long time and his heart gave out CBS News aired Caserta's report of Hill's death, during which she stated, he went out pretty peacefully for a good fella. <laughs> and then the credits rolled. Hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Remember that movie? Yeah, huh? yeah. <laughs> oh, please, please give me a check. <laughs> <laughs> so she said Hill had recently had a heart attack before his death and died of complications after a long history of heart problems associated with smoking. Unfortunately, not very dissimilar from the man himself, Ray Liotta. So, um, you know. Yeah, man. Don't, Organized don't, crime or not, cigarettes. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. They killer. don't care. They don't care if you're in the mob. They'll still kill you. No, they don't. Cigarettes they don't, don't care if you're a made guy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They'll get you either way. I feel the mafia should whack cigarettes for whacking made guys without getting permission. They really should. That's <laughs> another thing that I feel like is in Sopranos a lot. Just they're all getting cancer. So. Yeah, yeah. It's like they don't lead help. Like, yeah, nobody, nobody's robbing trucks so they can fucking jog every day and eat like no red meat. You know, um, Hill's family was present when he was died, and he was cremated the day after his death. Um, that is the story of Henry Hill. Worth it? I don't. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I would I say kind of like you. You have one of the best movies ever made, made about your life. Yep, and uh, you. I mean, you betray all of your friends and send them to prison, uh, but like probably your son Greg stops hating you as much. Yeah, like that's probably good. Yeah, it, it seems like so, for, for being a snitch, everybody still kind of everybody likes Henry Hill. Like when I hear about Henry Hill, I don't immediately think snitch. I'm just like, oh yeah, you like like I. I, I think gangster. I think you know, like, like I don't. I think the things he would good you would fella. want. You think yeah. good fella. I think good fella. He's I, uh, I, and, and as you said, he was very charming. Like people liked him. Yeah, I uh, I think probably not worth it because he I I think the parts of the movie where he had a bit of a drug problem and was abusing his wife were were real. So yeah, from, yeah. from what I know, you mentioned the abuse. You didn't mention the drug problem, but I'm gonna yeah, go you, ahead and assume that that wasn't totally made up. Yeah, no, so. I don't think it was. I think it might have been underplayed a bit in the movie actually, because <laughs> like 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 when you hear about like his his mafia cohorts, like they kind of openly referred to him as a junkie. They were just like, yeah, this dude's like. You know, like he, he, whatever I, you know, like a lot of those guys, they, you know, they'll get fucked up. They'll have their fun or whatever, but there's always like some weird line that and it's, it's hard to trace, but they, they feel they don't cross it. And when one of their guys starts visually showing the signs of being a junkie, like that does not sit well with those dudes. Cause Again, they're like, no, Chris yeah, Chris yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, man, that, that is the, the Henry Hill story. Shout out. I forget who it was. I think it was somebody in our discord, uh, shout out to the Patreon and our, our Discord people who brought up 
um, you know, the, uh, the, when is it going to be a Henry Hill episode? I forget exactly who said it, but here you are. This one's for you. Uh, and if it wasn't, you take credit for it. Who cares? You know, I don't know. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, that being said, guys, um, thank you for, for listening today. Like I said, if you liked what you heard today, please give us a five-star review and a small, you know, five-star rating and a small review on any platform you listen to us on. That'll really help us. Uh, if you want, we have an, a Patreon that gives you two more episodes a month. You can go to patreon.com slash lie, cheat, and steal. I'm going back on tour next month from July 4th to the 27th. So please take a look at my website and, or my email or my t- Twitter, and you can see all my dates there. And uh, Kath, you got anything for us? Um, yeah, I have a, a live What a Time to Be Alive show on July 8th at the Gutter in Williamsburg. What a Time to Be Alive is my other podcast that comes out every week. Uh, we talk about dumb news stories. Um, I'm also going to be in Austin um, the weekend of the twenty July 28th. I'm going to be at the Velveeta Room, so if you're in Austin, come check that out. And uh, yeah, I'll, all my dates and stuff are on Twitter at Kath Barbadoro. So thank you for listening. Right. All right. Well, yeah, guys, thanks for, thanks for listening. Uh, have fun out there, man. Summer's, summer seems like it's really kicking off. People are going out and doing stuff. So get out there. Be, be safe. Be smart. Have fun. But above all, don't get caught. Don't get caught. See you next time. Bye.